Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Falls Chief Investment Officer and your host here at The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and hopefully the real stuff, which is exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the ones who make things happen. And can I tell you, I am just chuffed with today's guest. He's a man I've followed and and have loved for such a long time. He is someone who really knows what's going on and has been making sense of it and explaining it to us for years. Michael Pascoe is the contributing economics editor at The New Daily and the author of a fantastic new book, which I will bang on about you buying, called Summertime of Our Dreams. He's been a mainstay of Australian economic commentary for decades. Starting off at the Courier Mail, he worked at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and then he's been at a who's who of Australian media ever since. He's written for the AFR, for the SMH, and for Crikey. He's been on our screens at Channel Nine and uh, Channel Seven, and of course Nine, where he was finance editor for almost two decades. And now, as I said, he's at the New Daily. That's a lot to get through, and we'll talk about the memoir. But without further ado, Michael, welcome to the Good Oil. Thank you, Scott. I don't want to talk. I want to listen to you talk about me. That sounds <laughs> very impressive. Enough about me. What do you think about me, mate? I uh, I have followed your career as a as a viewer, as a reader for such a long time. Uh, the Business Sunday days are the first time I can remember uh, seeing a Michael Pascoe piece to camera, and it was just fantastic. I've followed you ever since, mate. I, I genuinely chuffed to, to be chatting with you now, mate. Um, let's let's kick off with that very question, the question of of the economy. Um, we'll ask you lots of different things as we go through the podcast, including we'll talk about the book. But mate, just just a, a starting point: where are we at economically when you when you look at what's going on, policy, circumstance, you know, uh, monetary policy, the economy itself? Where are things at right now, in your view? Oh, we're on a knife edge between the Reserve Bank and other central banks going too far and trying to contain uh, inflation and tipping us into a slowdown that I don't think we really need to have in Australia. But it's a relative thing. Um, what I try to do these days, and you know, the luxury of this end of the career, is that you can stand back and have a look at the bigger picture and try to keep perspective about things, that you don't have to get caught up in the daily news. You know, I've, about a, I've spent about a quarter of a century having to do daily market reports. And I look back on it with a degree of embarrassment because the reality is most of any daily market report is noise. You know, a few big things happen occasionally, but most of it, you're finding excuses for why stocks went up half a percent or down half a percent. And a day later, it's, it's history that doesn't matter. So that sort of daily noise, I try to step back from and keep perspective. So what's important to me about the Australian economy, not just today or yesterday or tomorrow, is our failure to realise our potential. There is a, a, a failure, I think, by the average person to realise just how good they've got it how lucky they are to be part of this economy, not part of the American economy, which dominates our news, not part of the European economy, but part of the Australian economy. And in this Australian economy, we have been failing to seize the initiative that's there for us. We've been failing to realise that fantastic potential we have to be even better. Mate, okay, well, that's a, that's a stunning start. I've got to then ask you the follow-up question, which is what are we missing or what should we be doing? That potential you mentioned, um, as you say, we're lucky to be where we are. I completely 100% agree. Um, but the, the we could be better bit. Where does, that, where does that come from? What are we missing? What should we be doing? I think the biggest lesson, particularly over the last decade or so, has been lazy management. Everyone likes to blame the workers, But when the Productivity Commission actually got down to examining why is our productivity growth slower than it could be, the key reason is second-rate management. Because by the nature of an economy where you have a lot of oligopolies and some monopolies, you don't have to try too hard. Corporate profits have been doing very nicely in Australia for a very long time without having to invest too much in the future. We have been lucky riding the resources boom and then the next resources boom and the latest resources boom. But beyond that, Uh uh, the degree to which Australian management is investing in the future has been steadily falling as a percentage of GDP. 
And why bother to when the money rolls in? The CFO will find another way to cut costs. He'll make bonus. The CEO will make bonus. Your average CEO is only in the job for five or six years anyway, so you know, who cares about the next decade? That, I think, is one of the key focuses of why we're not shooting the goals we should be shooting. I love that, mate. Is there a question of international focus? I guess if you, you know, to, just to kind of devil's advocate a little tiny bit, if you're one of the big banks, you've got the thing captured, why would you try? If you're Woolies and Coles, you've got the thing captured, why would you try? We've got two airlines. We're a nation of oligopolies, duopolies and monopolies, generally speaking, where honestly not trying is probably more efficient than trying in terms of the returns, right? Because if you go and spend all that money just to be slightly better than the other guy or say, well, I could, but I could just bank what I'm getting already – uh, is it is a lack of competition policies, lack of international focus? What, what how, how should we put a rocket under those executives and say, guys, try harder? Oh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I, I would like I would like to see more ambitious boards. It, it is hard, Scott. Um, you know, I've been paid to sit around and observe chief executives going about their job for decades, uh, particularly in those Business Sunday days when, you know, for eighteen years. I think I interviewed about every CEO that counted in the country, and I frequently did their first interview as a CEO and their last interview as a CEO. The average CEO, by definition, is pretty average. Just like the average journalist, the average football player, the average everything. And you think, okay, the average CEO has paid a whole pile of money to be average. I'd like to see boards demand a greater long-term focus. The KPIs should not be focused on the share price in the next six months or one year or two years, but where's the company going to be down the track? What sort of profits is it going to be making in a decade's time? There was a fascinating study I saw some years ago, and off the top of my head, I can't remember who, whose it was, but it was a comparison of the way private family-owned companies invest and the way public companies invest. Private family-owned companies invest more in their future than public companies because if you're running a private company, you're thinking of the kids and the grandkids taking over. You're running a public company, and, oh, well, I've got my bonus this year, and what job will I have in a couple of years' time? Um, that's, that's obviously not all. You do have some way above average CEOs, but there aren't too many who really look for the long term. I like that, mate. I, I've often said if it was up to me, I'd have boards set set bonuses that only invest five years after the CEO leaves based on what's happened next. So it means you've got to invest for the long term. You've got to make, invest in your successor. If you knew you were only going to get your multi-million dollar bonus if in 2027 XYZ had happened, you've got to focus a whole lot more on how well you build that business and, and for whom and who you get to take over from you rather than saying, thanks for the money. Most of it's short-term bonus. Maybe next year if I'm really, really lucky, but I'll probably walk away with many millions and who cares what happens next. And one of the things you just mentioned there about who takes over as CEO, I think that should be a an absolutely top-line KPI for every chief executive. Most of them are worried about who's going to take over in case they come and stab them in the back and take <laughs> over too <laughs> That's right. Exactly. There are, exactly. Let, let me give you, you know, there's only sort of a bare handful of CEOs who I, I regard as heroes. Mm. Uh, one of them, I think, is Paul Anderson, the American who was brought in to tidy up and clean up BHP. That's right. Top yeah. of his list from day one was who's going to take over. You know, looking for someone better than yourself. Mm. That's a very hard thing to do. You know, looking for someone who can do the job better than you can do it takes a degree of humility. It takes a degree of dedication to the company that a lot of people don't have. That you know, oh, there's someone really good coming up. Yeah, let's see where I can transfer him to so the board doesn't notice. <laughs> Siberia's a long way away. <laughs> Mate, I've, I, I could talk to you for four hours. We haven't got that long, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. Um, we'll speak a bit later uh, about the book, but you grew up in, in Petrie in, in Queensland, then you went to school in Nudgee. Uh, you're a kid from, from what was then relatively rural Queensland, less rural these days as I look at the map. Um, but what led you to journalism, mate, in general and, and business journalism in particular? How did you, how did you get from there to there? Uh, journalism... I think primarily it was love of the written word. I mean, I, I love writing. I've always loved communicating. Uh, that, and if you love English, <laughs> what, how do you earn a living? Obviously, 
journalism seems like the way. I think there is another factor in helping that decision work. I think to stick with journalism, to enjoy journalism, you have to like telling people stuff they don't know. You have to like sharing a story. Um, I, there is a human nature to spread gossip. People love, oh, you don't, let me tell you about this, something you don't know. I think to be a journalist and stick with it, you've got to have a fairly high degree of that drive. So I was very fortunate. I managed to score a cadetship at the Courier-Mail. Um, those cadetships have always been hard to score, but I got some pretty good marks and happened to, um, to score one. That was straight from school. You studied part-time. Most people those day, in those days, you'd do a couple of majors at Queensland University that didn't teach you anything. And you learned about the real world as a cadet journalist pretty quickly. In terms of the drift into specialising in finance journalism, that was a matter of, you know, I went overseas for a while, South China Morning Post and travelled, mm. came back to Australia at the end of 1979. At that time, by far the best paper in the country was the Australian Financial Review. It was in that golden era when Max Walsh was editing it. You were hired and you were trusted until you proved otherwise, unlike most places. You were expected to do your job better than any of the competition and you were trusted to do so. It was, and the Fin Review, while it was a champion of free markets, it was not a cheer squad for Australian businesses. It was holding the blowtorch to them. It was holding the blowtorch to both sides of politics to get genuine reform. So I managed to get a job at the Fin Review. Again, I was lucky. Uh, my initial job there was writing about the computer industry, which is one of the jobs I'd had in Hong Kong. And from there, if you're on the Fin Review, you can fairly quickly find yourself being day news editor and working on the mining and oil review section, the investment section. And before you know it, you're a finance journalist. Mm. Well, before you know it, 40 years later, I suppose <laughs> I'm a finance and economics journalist. Yes, it's a, uh, time goes very, very quickly. Uh, you wrote that you grew up in Hong Kong. That it kind of was, it was the, 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 I won't say the making of you, that's not what you said, but you, you, you grew up. That, that's what helped you grow up or made you grow up. Uh, what was that like from a kid from Queensland? I, I don't mean Queensland, kids from Australia. I, I can imagine Hong Kong would have been a remarkably cosmopolitan place. Um, so much new to learn. Was it, was it a case of kind of jumping in a sinking or swimming or is that too cliched? Uh, look, it's always that. Whenever you go anywhere, whenever you start a new job, whenever you move to, to any new destination, it, I reckon you've got to jump in and make the best of it. I had a fascination with Hong Kong as a wee child. I think mm. it was the impact of watching an ancient television program most people have forgotten. It was called Hong Kong. It starred Rod what? Taylor, who was a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong. <laughs> I think I was brainwashed by it early because that's where I wanted to go. That's where I wanted to work. I had a fascination with China and Hong Kong yeah, yeah. in 1976. That was as close as you could get to China, pretty much. Uh, and I went there as a child. I was 21. I'd been, you know, left the family home to find my own way in the world. So, yeah, you grow up in those circumstances. Man, I want to take you back to business for a second before we get back to the book. Um, one of the things I've always loved about your journalism is you're, you're fearless and ever sceptical, uh, but but with a with a smile, with a with a kind of a knowing wink to the to the viewer, the the sense that as you say about the fin, it was okay. Well, these guys are supposed to be important, but you and I know better, and I'm going to make sure that I give you the information you need. But without without kowtowing, without feeling like I need to be on the PR team of of, of said business person or. or political party or whatever else um, you've written about a lot of topics recently man i'm just going to run through a couple and almost get sort of some some sort of responses from some of these things you've written about them already so nothing that's going to uh worry you but um the, the most recent one you wrote about in fact you we're recording this on uh on the 2nd of november you tweeted about it this morning i retweeted it the power of the of the clubs and the gaming lobby um the fact that uh, you talk about new south wales in particular but i don't think it's unique to new south wales the fact that neither party seems prepared to even risk possibly offending the club's lobby, let alone genuine reform. Your thoughts on that, mate? Uh, it's obscene. And it's a degree of corruption. And one aspect of it, good people. There are some good people who go into politics. How hard must it be for them to go through all the effort of working your way up through a political machine to get pre-selection, to win a vote, to perhaps work very hard in your portfolio if you're a minister but at the end of the day, if you try to reform the gambling industry 
your machine won't let you because Clubs New South Wales and the Australian Hotels Association has demonstrated a grip over New South Wales politics, both Liberal, National and Labor, that they dare not step too far out of line. How obscene has it been that there's been a memorandum of understanding before each election signed with Clubs New South Wales, basically saying, we promise not to do anything you don't like. And the reality is, we've just had the New South Wales Crime Commission finish a report on, they were looking into money laundering in uh, poker machines and electronic gaming machines and hotels and, and clubs. And what they found is there are billions of dollars of the proceeds of crime going through those machines. This is obscene. You would think it can't be allowed to happen. And a fair whack of those billions of dollars is actually crime that's been committed to feed the gambling habit, that there are gambling addicts selling drugs and making a million dollars a year who have nothing to show for it because it's all gone straight to the bogies. This is a crime commission that's done an extensive report and has come up with the number one recommendation, the same recommendation that has come out of the Crown Casino Inquiry and the Star Casino Inquiry, you've got to have cashless game, gaming. You need to have a card so that the weight of dirty cash in the, in the system won't find its way through the clubs of clubs. It also has that little benefit of doing a massive amount to reduce the harm of gambling addiction. And yet, Neither party has been prepared to stick up its hand and say, yep, we'll do it. And the only way they're going to do it is if the Premier and the opposition leader agree to sit down together and have a bipartisan policy, because otherwise they'll get knocked off by those who pull their chain. It, it is remarkable, mate. I, I, I'm always fascinated too. Um, I want to keep going on other topics, but these club, the clubs in particular are not-for-profit entities where, you know, if, you, if you're a business, you can understand... Uh, the the temptation to pull some strings in government to get more money, right? Money money is the is the root of all evil, and we know all that, so that's all fine. Uh, and you know, it's fine to say, well, it's not fine, of course, but understandable that the people who are greedy and prepared to bend some rules would to make more money. If you're if you're a licensed club, literally not for profit, you might get you might take ten cents off the price of a schnitzel, or you know, twenty cents off a schooner of beer. But it it, it always staggers me the 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 growth thing. Like I'm a, I'm a I'm a democratic capitalist. I, I love markets. I'm an investor for a quid. But, but when you think a not-for-profit club is growing almost for the sake of growing and letting that harm be done in the name of effectively not-for-profit growth, it is it, not only is it obscene, it just it is mind-boggling. It's, it's, it's almost hard to reconcile. There are still big profits involved. The CEOs <laughs> of the biggest clubs are being paid a million to one and a half million dollars a year. Yeah. Now, they're not getting that for taking 10 cents off the price of a schnitty <laughs> or a schooner. They're getting that for running a massive gaming enterprise. Yeah. The biggest clubs in New South Wales have 700 plus machines. Mm. And they're not just all old fashioned pokies. They are roulette wheels in the shape of a machine. They are the casinos. And the culture of an organization sets in a self perpetuating culture where the board is very comfortable being wined and dined mm. and the CEO's class is extremely comfortable. I would be if I was being paid a million dollars plus a year. And therefore, that power keeps being exerted. From That's the clubs. Meanwhile, in the pubs, the price of, of pubs has gone through the roof, not because of the price of a schooner. God knows that's expensive enough. But because they have those money-making machines and they're sucking cash out of putters. And that's what the basis of the game is. I know of one publican many years ago who set aside one of his machines for charity to try to ease his conscience. Because he could see what they were doing, and that was his business, but one of his, I don't know how many machines he had, 10 or 20, one of them he had to give away the profits from to try to justify it to himself. Um, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> It is extraordinary. Mate, let's move on to the federal budget. A bit of a nothing budget. I've called a nip and tuck budget. Your thoughts on how the, the, the current fiscal circumstances find us? I've, I've called it the watch this space budget because okay. there was more not there than was there. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. And 
how many times have you heard Jim Chalmers say, we need to have a conversation? Well, Scott, we're having a conversation about the budget, which is just what Jim wanted us to do. What that budget has done is said, watch this space, look at all the problems that are coming. And that is being honest. The problem the government has is it, it is so scarred by 2019, it is not game to break any of the promises it made before the election, one of which being no new taxes. Uh, and it is perfectly obvious that there, we do need tax reform. And tax reform has become extremely hard. Even something as simple and as obvious as putting a windfall tax on the carbon industry. Uh, there was an early suggestion by somebody, Australia Institute or someone, we could have had, and we still could have, a levy on carbon exports. On every tonne of coal and tonne of LNG, we could have a levy on that that Australian consumers wouldn't pay. It'd take the top off the profitability, the undreamt of profits that coal miners and gas miners are reaping, and the government could put that to work on the things it needs to put to work. So it's not this budget. This is just a stopgap to try to fix some of the worst things about the March budget. Hang on till next May and we'll see what they're talking about. Nice, mate. Let's go to that while I was just going to ask you about mining rents in general. I have a view, and I, I want yours, I'm probably entirely wrong, that rather than a super profits tax, we should just be charging higher mining rents. If you think about, if, if, if you and I owned the Australian Mineral Resources, or from a, let's say I'm a quarry for the fun of it, own Australia's Mineral Resources, and you said, McQuarrie, how much do you want to charge for these things? If it was all yours, and you could choose how much to charge those who would extract it. Macquarie wouldn't say, no, we've got the things about right. I, I reckon Macquarie's going to quadruple it before they even eat breakfast. Um, I, the profits tax, yes, we, we should absolutely take more out of it. And if a super profits tax is the best way or maybe the only way, then we should do it. I just find it bizarre that the 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 inheritance we've had from when the land was gone, when, when the first Aboriginal people arrived, then from our forebears, they've left it in the ground, left it in the ground, left it in the ground. We take it out once. We charge the miners almost nothing and we let them go and sell it to anybody and make whatever profit they want. I would start at that very level and just simply say, you don't get it out of the ground unless I get a fair price for that in the first instance. Um, is that so far wrong? Is a super profits tax better? How would you How would you do it? Oh, look, I picked you as a communist from the very start, Scott. <laughs> I thought, oh, he's this guy. He's, he's a red on top of the bed. Oh, you've outed me on the podcast. Now I'm all sorts of trouble. <laughs> look, I, you're entirely right. And the fact of the matter is, you put that hypothetically, if we owned it. But, mate, we do yeah, own it. That's exactly. We do yes, own it. Yeah. The citizens yeah. of the Commonwealth own all the mineral right. rights. Right, yeah. The thing about royalties is uh, on the mainland, on, on land, that is the province of the states. And yeah. different states have different rates and different rates for mates. We've just seen Queensland <laughs> lift the royalties they demand for coal uh, for the first time in a decade, I think, and didn't the coal industry scream? This is outrageous. The coal industry that is making more money out of thermal coal than it ever dreamed possible claimed it was outrageous. Uh, it's not. How you want to do it, whether, uh, you know, how flexible you should be able to make royalties, that's tricky. Yes, if someone is about to invest all the money in exploration, and the massive capital in a mine, they need to have some security and stability about what the cost of the raw material is going to be. That's understandable. And that can be set for a period after which it should rise and fall with market conditions. There was the attempt uh, under the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd government to do it via resources rent tax, which is one of those economic theories that is good in theory, that's pretty hard to make work. Um, at the moment, when there is a clear windfall profit factor, uh, profiteering on war effectively, mate, you don't need royalties for that. You need a levy on exports or call it what it is, a windfall profit tax. And there's a precedent. When Scott Morrison was treasurer, he didn't call it a tax. He called it a levy on the banks. Because the banks coming out, we are doing extremely well. And here was this little levy. Don't call it a tax. Right now, we could have a levy 
on gas and coal that would make all the sense in the world. And would make the budget uh, structural deficit disappear too, I dare say. It would be a very fine thing. Mate, uh, let's go to national sovereignty. You mentioned war. You wrote recently about, uh, I think the headline was, if you're worried about our sovereignty, don't worry. It's, uh, don't bother, it's gone, you, you wrote, uh, was the headline at least. Uh, some people listening will say, oh, of course, of course, because the Americans own us. The others will say, of course, of course, we've, you know, we're, China owns us. Uh, what, if it's already gone, where has it gone and, and can we get it back? Uh, right now, what concerns me is that it's gone to the United States we have surrendered our sovereignty in terms of how we defend this country. We don't defend Australia anymore. We uh, have decided to be part of the American military machine. Uh, those subs, you know, the AUKUS, nuclear-powered subs, they are not about defending Australia. They are about working as part of the American Navy in the South China Sea. Uh, to defend Australia, we could do with a whole pile of conventionally-powered submarines hanging around our coast. Um, but no, we want submarines that can go and sit in the South China Sea and fight China. I call myself a Sino-neutral. Most of Australian media now is populated by Sinophobes. And you know, China's scary, yeah. All, all, all big rising powers are scary. And the fact that it's a dictatorship doesn't help. But I think, again, you step back, look at the perspective Look at the world, how it looks if you were China, instead of how it looks if you're the United States and you're worried about no longer being the richest country on earth. Uh, and the world looks different. And we have a delicate act to play, staying friends with the US and not losing our relationship with China. And Scott, there's a, there's a piece I'm working up to, I haven't written it yet, but we've become locked in with the United States in its desire to bifurcate the world. You're either with China or the US, and they are setting up trade sanctions on China to limit what China can do. Right now, the world can't afford that. We can't afford to fall into an us and them world because we're being attacked by an alien. The alien is climate change, and it's desperate, and we keep pretending it's not there even when we pay lip service to it. We actually need the world to be on the same page. And you can't do that when you're preparing for war with each other. Uh, that's a minority view. Mainstream media in Australia is all drinking the Kool-Aid from Aspie and uh, the Spooks. Um, and it's hard to find independent perspective on it. Which is why your perspective and, and others, uh, New Daily and others, are, are so incredibly important in our media landscape. Mate, let me just let me throw devil's advocate at you on that one, just just for the sake of fleshing this one out. You say that we're jumping in with the US, the US is bifurcating the world. Those who would not be in your camp would say, actually, that's what China's doing. China is saying, here are our demands of 10 things you must do, Australia, otherwise not going to be friends. And we're, we're very isolated down here and saying, well, hang on, China's making these demands that are, I think they are generally unreasonable, um, as, as big powers like to do. Uh, it's a question of who's, who's unreasonable demands you, you go for. Um, but, you know, is there some sense that maybe we're looking at this and saying in, in the world of real politics, as the cool kids like to say, we've got a choice of either cozying up to one or the other. Without, you know, we can't really be independent down here. There is no choice. You've just got to choose your ally and choose your enemy. Uh, and so we've chosen the states. Is that, is that so far wrong? I think that's oversimplifying it. And the reality is you can choose to be independent. Again, we have this very narrow, rather Anglophone vision of the world. Uh, South America and Africa, two continents that we just totally ignore, have a rather different view of these things. For that matter, ASEAN has a rather different view of it. ASEAN, much closer to China, has the job of living with China and making room for it. Even in the words there, Scott, the infamous, I think, nine demands or whatever it was from, from China. Uh, there's a question mark about the translation of the Chinese word. They were areas of concern, and they weren't demands being made by Xi Jinping. They were a functionary at the embassy gave to a journalist. You know, these are things we'd like to see. I, I can give you a list of 20 demands of things I'd like to see. Not that add up to much. The, and, the, and the matter is that, again, perspective. Okay, China is accused correctly, of using economic 
coercion on Australia to try to get its way on things. It would like us to not insult it. Big powers are like that. Count the amount that China's done against the amount that the United States is always doing, and there's the world of difference. The United States has the most extraordinary extraterritorial, I always have trouble saying this, extraterritoriality uh, powers that it gives itself with trade embargoes, with seizing assets, with financial lockdowns. Um, Just look at Cuba. The United States, the way it's treated Cuba now for 60 years is outrageous. Uh, The rule of law. The United States hasn't signed the law of the sea. It refused to. In terms of what big powers do, yes, it's terrible that China has been building those islands up as bases in the South China Sea. What's unusual is they've been building on unoccupied rocks. Every other great power has gone and invaded someone, killed people, and seized the islands. Exactly. Um, So, look, China is a problem, but the reality is it's going to rise. Our future depends on it. We would be better off looking for the example of how Singapore handles it, how Vietnam handles it, how Malaysia handles it, rather than the United States, which has declared war. It's a trade war at present, um, but holy smoke, the campaign's on to do worse than that. I want to talk about the book, uh, The Summertime of Our Dreams. It's an absolute joy to read. I bought it the second I knew it was released. And I must admit, I left it on the shelf for a couple of months and finally got to it. I have a longer list of books that I should read than I will ever get to. But it's an absolute joy to read and to listen to. I've listened to it uh, on Audible and it's just spectacular. It's a beautifully, honestly written book. Um, I, I kind of describe it as part reminiscence, part travelogue and part story of mateship and, and growing up. I don't know if that's how you'd characterise it, but it's ostensibly about your relationship with an old schoolmate, Jim McCormack, who had terminal cancer. Um, but it's obviously much more than that as well. Uh, just to start with, mate, what, what brought you to write the book? Is there something that always burning in the back of your mind? Was it, was it a tale that needed to be told? Was, was Jim's illness the, the catalyst? How, how do you come to write The Summertime of Our Dreams? There are actually a few things happening there, Scott. Uh, the first one was a promise I made to my father, who did not appreciate what he achieved in life. This is a man who left school um, in Western Queensland. He was born in Barcaldon. He left school when he was still a child to work as a rouseabout on a station west of Longridge. He eventually, he was managing stations in the west when he was was not, not much more than a boy. He became a country copper. He married my mother and raised six children, and the partnership of mum and dad was dedicated to providing the opportunity for their children that they did not have. Um, I think it was a particular driver for mum, the value of education. So they sacrificed and worked to give their six children an education and opportunity and a supportive family life. And dad didn't understand what a massive achievement that was. For mine, the great Australian novel is Cloud Street by Tim Whitten. And and why is that the great Australian novel? Well, I think it's because it tells the story of the past century, certainly the story of post-war Australia, which was the rise from working class to university educated. The punters, the scrabblers, the workers who in one generation had children who were going to university. Uh, And... I, in my more pretentious moments, I hoped that the summertime of our dreams would be a non-fiction version of that. And some of the stuff I've put in there, or I'll be a bit more pretentious with you, Scott. I, I wrote this to be read as it's read, you know, as it seems. But I also, as a non-fiction book, but I also hoped that it could be read as fiction because if you read it as fiction, Laura, let me try to be difficult. Nonfiction tends to tell you, whereas good fiction tends to show you and then you're meant to think about it. I wanted the nonfiction version of the Sometime of Our Dreams to tell you, but I wanted the sort of fiction version to perhaps make you think, why is this guy writing so much about bloody speeding when he's driving? Maybe that's a metaphor. Why is this guy obviously showing off 
that he's pretty comfortable. That you know, he, he's got Alpers, he's got a place at Sunshine Beach. He clearly lives in a fairly comfortable suburb. Maybe that's because I was trying to draw the contrast from my father to me. So, sorry, that's a long, a long answer to the long answer of the beginning of an answer is that it began as a debt because I told Dad I would write a book about him one day. Dad's been dead now for 40 years. So I began to write that and I was using that metaphor of the drive from Queens, from Sydney up to Sunshine Beach. And then my conversation with Jim, my schoolmate, started. So that got woven in and you don't have to be much of a pop psychologist to see the similarities between Jim and my father, both bushies. And then, yeah, look, I had a bit of cancer as well, and then COVID came along. So it was weaving multiple streams in there along with a love of country and an acknowledgement of country. So um, there's no easy answer. It grew and evolved and was woven over many years. It is, and you've captured that beautifully, mate. I think it is absolutely a book that shows rather than tells, and it is written as a book that could absolutely be fiction. It strikes me it's also a story of relationships, mate. It's a relationship with ourselves, with our bodies, with our friends and family, um, with country, as you say, and it is just beautifully done, your ability to to take that drive over 50-plus chapters uh, and talk about that as well as talk about your mate Jim and, and your own life and, and your parents and your families. Um, very much that story of the Nudgy Rugby team as well. Uh, it was the 15 out of 16 A's, I think, uh, and and uh, and it's just it's a it's a is that kind of I, I, I'm t- I'm trying to grab for something here. It feels also like a memoir for yourself. Is that is that part of what it was, or is it, or is that literally just the first person telling other stories and, and making those points? The elements of it are from memory, so that makes it a memoir. But it's not it's not a it's not a memoir memoir. It's not a biography. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things about the book is that it doesn't fit a category. And so you go into a bookshop and, oh, it's a memoir, stick it in biography. It's, it's not biography. It's not the story of my life. It's not the story of Jim's life. It's not the story of my dad. Although it is, it's not. Um, it, is, it is much more than that. So it doesn't fit a nice little niche and then it's actually made it harder to market, unfortunately. <laughs> which, is, which is a very great shame. And I hope, uh, look, listeners, while you're listening, to this, pause this podcast right now. Make sure you come back because there is an absolute treat at the end, I promise you. Uh, but uh, but pause this right now. Come back to it. Go and order the sum of, of our dreams. Grab it on Booktopia. Go on Amazon. Uh, grab it from your local bookstore if you, if you want, wherever you wherever you get your books from. Uh, do Honestly, do yourself a favor. You will love this. Uh, also, by the way, grab the audio book. Uh, Michael is a broadcast journalist, obviously, as we all know. The narration of it is is spectacular. Hearing it in the voice of the author, it just adds even more to it, Michael. So thank you for thank you for doing that. I'm glad it wasn't someone else who narrated it. It needed to be you, and it was you, you did it beautifully. Scott, I've got to say, I've I found that really hard to do. Um, you know, they asked me if I'd like to record it myself, and I said, Oh yeah, love to. Oh, I'll sound like Jack Thompson, and I'll make Jim's voice. Russell Crowe. No, it sounds like me. Um, <laughs> Which it needs to. That's the beauty of it. I think for all of us who, particularly who who, who have spent so much time listening to you and watching to you in broadcast media, even some of the uh, the videos you did for some of the websites you've written for, that that uh, that that is Michael Pascoe's voice. And the, the writing itself obviously sounds like you anyway. It's very much that first person. But hearing it hearing it has been even better. Uh, mate, I, I, I have to bring the, the car thing up. You mentioned it. You mentioned it before. You're obviously partial to an alpha. I think if you were, if you're not sponsored by them, you should have absolutely done a deal before the book was written because uh, you, you you spent a lot of time uh, talking about those those number of them. I don't know how many you've owned, but uh, you, you obviously the, the the driving is not just. Uh, being a, a passenger with a steering wheel, driving is absolutely driving to you. And alpha seems like uh, the right vehicle to do it in. Well, alpha. Again, it, it, there are some hidden messages in there. Uh, one of the one of the themes in the book is the importance of roots, about where you come from and what you bring with you from your roots. Uh, as a boy growing up in Petrie, which back then was a little country town outside Brisbane, now it's you know not even an outer suburb. The flashiest car you tended to see in the early sixties as a small boy was maybe an Alpha GTD, and out at the Lakeside Race Circuit. You'd have them battling the muscle cars and just looking so smooth, that little bit of Italian class that, you know, all those boring cars didn't have. And, and you know, the, the, the things we desire as children become our passions as old men when you can afford to indulge in those passions. And 
the difference I've got to tell people is that Alfa Romeos have a soul. Ordinary cars <laughs> are the transport Alphas are driving. Um, I look at people driving. There are certain German brands, I won't mention them. And you think, yeah, you know, they're all just VW Beetles with body kits on. That's it. Nothing else. I think I've just Shots fired. Those are crazy. those are fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's um, yes. I think it's it's. You're right about some of those early early boyhood dreams and what they what they become. I uh, I this is this is this will horrify you. But uh, I grew up and my old man had a, a Holden Kingswood station wagon, 1979 HZ, and it's one of those cars. I, I inherited it from him, and then my sister got it, and then she sold it to a mate. It's long since gone. Uh, but at some point, ju- just for the pure, and this is maybe this is the story of getting old. The reminiscences, as you so beautifully write about in the book, um, of kind of wanting to maybe keep some of that or bring some of that back um if i if i could if i could i'd probably have to put a strap a tank on the back and i'd pay through the nose for the petrol but uh if i could just drive it uh, you know a beautifully restored hz kingswood it's a terrible car it's a tank of a thing you, you don't drive it you kind of you kind of haul it around corners and you know it's more a boat than car but there are there are some of those things that you never quite lose they're always in the back of your mind as as a picture of something and maybe maybe that's also part of the book and, and those things form us all those experiences that might be childish, might be nothing, but they go into the mix of the people we are. Um, and again, it comes back to family. That our, our parents and our uncles and our grandparents and our aunts, they are our heritage, for good or for bad, but we are their legacy and our children are our legacy. And what do we end up offering them? Uh, it's it is probably the biggest unspoken theme or point in the book that I wanted to be there that people could see it. That is, my father's generation, my parents' generation, had that great achievement from the end of World War II in terms of material success and opportunity for the next generation. Okay, what are we doing? What is the next achievement? How do we keep progressing? from what they achieved, or have we fallen in a hole? Are we handing over a planet that's getting worse to our children and grandchildren? Have we dropped the ball? The responsibility of our heritage, um, are we failing to keep that up? Yeah, it's a um, it's a it's a heavy question, mate. A one that I don't think we are addressing as a as a society or as a, as a country. Uh, before we get to our final questions, and then an absolute an absolute treat for me and for our listeners. So again, make sure you listen right to the end of this podcast. You tell the story during the book, mate, of of country of, of a country, um, both those things, country in the in the spiritual sense, and, and perhaps uh, going back to the the original Indigenous Australians. But also a country, a place, a time, maybe being lost to us. You talked about, you know, is this the end of the grey nomads? Do we, you know, when you grew up, you knew someone. There was a relative who lived in the bush, or at least you knew someone who who knew someone who lived in the bush. That that uh, fracturing of of society. At one point, you know, the world is getting smaller, but the country is getting bigger in some ways. We're not seeing and doing as much of that. And that's maybe I feel the same, but I'm also mindful. Maybe it's rose-colored glasses. Maybe it's maybe we all long for the thing that we used to have. It might have been, uh, you know, a time without white people, frankly, for the Aboriginal Australians, or or for those early arrivals, you know, the old country. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. But I do feel the same the same thing. I I, I try and get out every winter. We do a road trip and just go go bush somewhere. Uh, we we did part of the time you were talking about. We we're in we we're in Longreach and Barcall, and only this year. Um, uh, is 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 that country being lost to us what, what what do we lose when we stop having those experiences knowing those people knowing that country and, and country again in that really rich spiritual sense as much as it is literally just the the world we used to live in i i swing between optimism and pessimism about that scott um i have my pessimistic days when i i think that again it's 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 a cultural inheritance you know we grew up or i grew up learning the bush ballads. The man from Snowy River and Clancy of the Overflow and all the C.J. Dennis stuff, um, we learnt and loved it. And everyone did seem to have a relative or a friend who lived in the bush and you visited them as friends and relatives, not as paid tourism. So, you know, to lose that, uh, yeah, you know, you can get lost in nostalgia. But on the other hand, I see the next generations of Australians 
discovering it anew. And you look at the boom in regional tourism in this country, uh, which is great for the bush, and you think, well, that, that's got to kick on. I also have to have faith in the power of the land, in the power of the country, because once you immerse yourself in it, once you open your heart to it, it'll grab you. It'll, it'll take you. And uh, can, I, can I jump off on a terrible tangent but to, dis- to demonstrate the potential? Last uh, Easter in Sydney, um, they made all public transport free. This was, you know, coming out of COVID lockdown and stuff. And we were going to, we're lucky that we live near the ferry and we used the ferry to commute. And we were going into the city to go to a restaurant. And of course, make the ferries and public transport free. And they were absolutely chockers with people. There were queues to get on them. And I was on the ferry with all these people and I realized there are a whole pile of kids who are catching a ferry on Sydney Harbour for the first time in their lives and they lived in Sydney. That these, these were people, part of Sydney, part of my community of Sydney, who hadn't been on a ferry on the harbour. And I thought, oh, we have so much beauty and wealth and richness. How do we share it more? How do we encourage people to appreciate it? And that same thing goes for the bush. If you can be introduced to it, if you can see it, you'll feel it and you'll love it and you want to go back. Mate, he, he, once, it, once you've done it, you can't get it out of you. Can't get it out of your veins. Either side, it's the harbour itself. If I was, if I was in charge of New South Wales tourism, I'd have ferries free all the time. It just makes it's just a jewel in the crown in, in Sydney, and and the bush is, is just glorious, as, as you rightly say. You'll be you'll be pleased to know, mate. I'm, I'm doing at least my little bit. I did actually recite. I didn't even have to read. I recited Clancy of the Overflow to my young nine year old last night while he was going to bed. So I I feel I feel vindicated, and somehow I'm probably just taking a, a, an ego based victory lap here, mate. But I, I I thought you might enjoy that. At least well, I'm doing my bit, and hopefully others are too. Well done, that man. <laughs> Mate, uh, let's get to our, our favourite four questions, then we will finish up. Uh, these are the ones we ask all of our guests. What are you reading, watching, streaming, listening to at the moment? What's captured your attention? Uh, what I've just finished, I, I had the pleasure of playing author at the Berry Writers Festival, and I was on a panel. Among the people on the panel was Jonica Newby, who uh, used to be a Catalyst reporter, and she's written a book called Climate Grief. And it is a very fine work that builds up on the reality of what we're facing, but deals with it through the emotions of handling it. You know, she and and she she began the book because she could see people writing about the problems facing coral. She has a particular love, as I do, for snow and snow gums. And she wanted to research what's the outlook for snow. And the outlook for snow is not good. Um, I would like to think that my grandchildren will be able to go skiing in the Australian Alps. The outlook is no. Um, that's the outlook. It began that way, but then other stuff happened. Um, the bushfires, and she began to see people suffering grief about the climate. And so it's an exploration of climate through the emotions and talking to people. Imagine being a coral scientist for the past 20 years screaming about what's happened and having governments deny it, deny it, deny it and play it down. And and that's got a that's got a personal toll on people. So that was interesting. Um that's that's the most recent book I've read. No, sounds uh, sounds uh, harrowing, but also incredibly important, mate. Thank you, Jonica Newby and, and Climate Grief. What trends are you watching, mate? You're you're a trend watcher by nature, and and maybe as you say, with it, with a bit more time to look back on a, a career and 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 think of some of the bigger picture things. What do you obviously climate's one, um, business and and politics is another. Are there any particular trends you're kind of saying as fascinating, scary, wonderful, uplifting? Scott, you're asking me for my fashion tips. I think blooms can be very big this year, and heels will have to come down. Um, look, <laughs> and that's just you and I. The, the, the things that oh. concern me, um, the global politics of China is gets a lot of focus. The scariest thing out there is the possibility of Trump or a Trump lookalike becoming American president because whatever the hell's happening in the world, it'd be worse if there's one of those Republicans in Washington. And so they're the big picture things that, that – I keep looking at the soft answer, the soft answer, and it's in the book, 
It also, I think, is commonplace for people who have had a dance with cancer that you do take a bit more time to smell the roses. Um, I have become quite entranced by birds. You know, I'm not a twitcher, but I, you know, I, I just get pleasure out of seeing a magpie and a cockatoo close up going about their business. And I try to talk to the magpies. Uh, they nod sagely and say to each other, the man's an idiot. Um, but uh, it's, it's that sort of thing that you just have the shock to the system of being, of appreciating how precious life is. You take that little bit more time to appreciate the beauty. You slow down. Maybe you don't speed as much through life as we tend to. My last question is one I'm going to ask you to expand on with a reading from your book, which is actually a reading of, a, of an article you'd written previously. But I'll ask the question first, and then I'll, I'll get you to share. The question is, what are you optimistic about? And I know, as you say, you swing between optimism and pessimism, but the book is a, is a celebration of life. The book is a celebration of kindness and optimism. Uh, so I, I guess I'll ask, what are you optimistic about, Michael? I'm optimistic about the fact that we can do anything we want to do. We have the technology to solve our problems. We just lack the political will to get on with it. We listen to the dark voices too often and the vested interests who like the status quo. But I'm optimistic that when we are faced with crisis, we tend to do the right thing. I have not lost my faith in human nature. I have lost my faith in some humans, but not human nature. And and so that 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 keeps me that keeps me optimistic. And Again, I, it's it's the power of this country, I think. If people appreciate it and understand it, they will want to protect it if they love it and we will begin to do the right thing. It's also, if I can squeeze in, if we're not running out of time, um, there was I, there's an article I read at the turn of this century and I've never been able to find it again, but it was a wonderful American article uh, about Rip Van Winkle. Imagine Rip Van Winkle... One went to sleep in 1900 and woke up in 1950. The other one went to sleep in 1950 and woke up in 2000. Which one would suffer the greater culture shock? Well, yeah. Think of the first one. He wakes up and there are aeroplanes, there are motor cars, there are telephones, there's TV. The world has totally changed. The roads aren't full of horses. You think, well, the second one wakes up and, okay, the planes are better, the cars are better, the TVs are colour. Um, okay, phones are now mobile, uh, but it's the second one that will have culture shock because the first one had things change. The second one has had people change. The, first one, the second one went to sleep when, um, in, particularly in the American context, it was a total racial divide. Um, yeah, homosexuality was illegal. Divorce was something you know, well, nice people didn't do it. Wake up and all of a sudden we have embraced sexuality as people's choice, not as a crime. Uh, interracial marriages are common. Um, as a society, we have advanced enormously in the last 50 years. And that gives me hope. That gives me optimism. If we consider how far we've come in my generation, in accepting people, in becoming a more accepting society, what can we do in the next 50? Yeah, that's a beautiful way to finish. Thank you very much. In fact, it's not the end because I've never done this before. I don't know if we'll ever do it again, but I've asked you if you wouldn't mind reading from your book. And it's actually an article you had written back in 2013. I've actually just pulled it up so I can, uh, I can see it in front of you now. And it was titled, Our 23 Millionth Citizen Has Just Won Life's Lottery. And I think it, it, it captured, obviously you wanted to include it in the book. I think it captures the things that we've been talking about and particularly the promise, I think, that that life and particularly life in Australia does offer. So would you would you do me the honour, mate, of, of reading that for me? Scott, I'd be delighted to. I did tell you that recording the book was hard work, having to concentrate. <laughs> and now you're asking me to do more hard work. Oh. You're an established broadcast journalist of great renown. Michael, you will have no problems whatsoever. I know that. Well, given how kind you've been about the book, I have to try. <laughs> Thank you. I took it upon myself to welcome and congratulate the first one in 23 million Australians. There was good cause for congratulations. 
I told baby 23 million he or she had won life's lottery just by being born here, a phrase I subsequently noticed a politician repeatedly using, somehow diminishing it. With all the optimism of 2013, though, it was easy to be optimistic. It still is if you keep the world in perspective. So I told baby 23 million, if your mother is an unmarried teenager reliant on our social welfare system, you are still much better off than most babies born on April 23, 2013. Odds are that you will have better housing, better health, and much longer life expectancy than your mewing peers. You have a universal free healthcare system serving your immediate needs when the world's richest nations still can't organise such a thing. You have doctors and nurses concerned for your welfare and the start of an immunisation program that gives you a world-leading chance of making it to primary school, unless you are unfortunate enough to score a ditzy anti-vaxxer mum. And talking of school, you have the promise of 13 years of free education if you want it, and have the ability and common sense to grab the opportunity when much of the world is lucky to finish primary school. Thereafter, we have a student debt system that offers you the chance of tertiary education without your parents being rich and or apprenticeships in very valuable trades. You strike it particularly lucky if being born in a country that enjoys the rule of law, more so if you're rich and white, less so if you're not, but it's still there. You'll get to decide which bunch of politicians is less worse than the other on a regular basis and make your way in a society that is relatively free of corruption. Everything is relative. Yours is a society, while not as financially egalitarian as it was a little while back, remains one with a bridgeable gap between its rich and poor. There is luck involved but at least it remains possible for you to do anything that your talent, drive and dedication is capable of. You can even end a sentence with a preposition. If you're a girl, you'll be able to wear as much or as little clothing as you wish and you'll have the same rights as a boy to the education and career of your choice. At our present rate of evolution, that right will be taken for granted by the time you get to exercise it and you'll be legally able to marry the person of your choice regardless of race, religion, social strata or sex. Religion, it's your call to believe or not believe in whatever god or gods you like, as long as you peaceably extend that right to everyone else, because faith is, well, a matter of faith. You might not guess it with all the whinging and whining you'll hear, but you've been born in a champion economy. Your fellow citizens are convinced they are highly taxed, although they're in the bottom third of rich nations on that score, and ironically that the government doesn't do enough for them, although they're in the top third when it comes to social safety nets. If you're really, really lucky, you'll be born a Queenslander and therefore inherit ownership of the nation's greatest rugby union and league teams, but have the freedom, if you can afford to, to live in Sydney the world's most beautiful city, despite what its citizens try to do and not do to it. But you don't have to. You'll have freedom of movement to enjoy the whole Dorothea McKellar panorama. Sweeping plains, rugged, mugget, rugged mountain ranges, jungles, deserts, drought and flooding rains. You can go tropo in the build-up and cuddle around a Tasmanian fireplace worship vast, empty surf beaches and embrace the blizzard-tortured sculpture of snow guns. You can open your heart to the endless openness of the outback, absorb that red dust and character into your soul, or thrive in a tiny inner-city apartment with the sound of sirens and aroma of coffee, spilt wine and stale beer as constant companions. We have cities and country towns and bush, maybe 23 million, where you can find your life's meaning or lose it if you're careless. It's up to you. And that is the most wonderful privilege of all. And you get all that just by being born here. Beyond such extraordinary fortune, it's a matter of wishing you well, hoping that you were born into a family that loves and strengthens you, 
that gives you what you need rather than what you want, that encourages you to adopt the best of the national character, believing in a fair go, supporting the underdog, being prepared to stand up for a principle against the odds. John Menadue wrote an Australia Day reflection on what is different about being Australian. For him, it came down to redemption, to giving people a second chance. He quoted his friend Ian McCauley as saying that while the British sent the Puritans to America, they sent convicts to Australia and that we got the better of the deal. The underprivileged and the outcasts in Australia got a second chance. For you, baby 23 million, it's a first chance. Please enjoy your incredible good fortune and privilege and welcome the responsibilities that come with it instead of taking it for granted, whinging and demanding to be given more while offering less. Maybe you'll make it even better. I hope so. Michael, that is beautiful and it's a uh, lovely example of your writing. I really do hope that all of our listeners go and purchase your book, The Summertime of Our Dreams. I have an absolute ball chatting to you. Thank you so much for being so kind and so gracious with your time and your thoughts. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on The Good Oil. Scott, thanks for having me. And I love the fact that you understand and get the book. As a writer, that's what it's all about. Glad to hear it. Thank you, mate. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.